things before we uh, not ready get fast. rolling on our uh, message. We'll uh, be continuing in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 11. So you can we're turn in there, the but I do want to remind our study in the book of Acts, and uh, we're in this chapter 11 September, at which this you all point, know, and we'll be looking at um, next month is October. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 been here for more than a through year. You'll 30, know and this is an amazing October, and is interesting passage the month of, of text as we continue we October our study fast. here. And, and, and one um, of the things I, I do right. want you to know, you'll be hearing more and more about as we're looking fast. At but this, and just by way of introduction, I want us to compare Acts days. chapter 1, at least verse 8, with Acts chapter 28, verse God, 30. Um, so let's look at those Acts chapter 1, so verse 8, and compare that today with Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and, and 31. You'll notice in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that's kind of... I'm going to but assume you may fast one day that's a week, or you Luke's break thesis up your days statement, if you will. That's well, kind of the, the I, center I of what Luke is going to tell us. And he says, these are the words days. of Jesus. He says, but you'll receive However, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, so and you will be that. my Maybe witnesses where? In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In fact, I would say that Luke might even pattern the entire book of Acts on that statement. But look at the very very last verses, I think this is amazing, the very last verses in the book of Acts, the last two verses, speaking of Paul, it says he, Paul, lived there, lived there, um, he's in Rome, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without Hindrance, And so Jesus promises at the beginning, the gospel is going to go forth, it's going to go into all of the world, and at the very end, we see a confirmation of that very truth, that Paul then is preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he's doing so without hindrance. We should not be surprised at this, because Jesus told his disciples when Peter made that great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he said, Simon, uh, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, and upon this I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That Jesus promises that I'm going to build my church and not even hell will be able to overcome and destroy my church. This is what I am going to do. And so, as we're in the book of Acts, which talks much about the early church, we find that it is Christ's purpose to build His church and His purposes will prevail. The gospel is going to go out. The gospel is going to go forth. It's going to Jerusalem. We've seen that. It's gone into Judea and Samaria. We are now going to begin witnessing it going into all the earth. And it is going to go um, and uh, wherever God begins to open the doors for that. And so, even though there are obstacles, even though there are issues and events to overcome, God's purposes for His church going into all of the world um, and His gospel going into all of the world um, will be accomplished. Now, let me give you a little bit of a, uh, just an idea of, a little bit about this passage of text. I, I see this passage that we're going to be looking at as, as, as a bit of a bridge. This is a bit of a transition in the book of Acts. And so uh, this passage that we're going to be looking at spans or bridges kind of the what was, what we've been studying in the book of Acts to what we're going to study in the book of Acts. So we're going to see this major shift. The main character in the book of Acts up till now has been... Peter. Peter's going to fade from the scene and Paul is going to become the main character in the book of Acts. So this passage serves as a bridge transitioning us from Peter being the main uh, individual over to Paul being the main individual in the book of Acts. We're going to see it, uh, the book of Acts transition now from focusing primarily of the gospel going to Jews to the gospel primarily going to Gentiles. This passage serves as that bridge. It's going to span that gap. It's going to transition us away from the gospel primarily being preached to the Jews to the focus 
being Gentiles. This does not mean at all that the gospel was not preached to Jews. It's just saying Luke's not going to focus on that for the most part throughout the rest of the book. That's all it means. This is Luke's focus. Also, we're going to see the, the, the major city from which the gospel goes forth is going to move from Jerusalem to Antioch. So this chapter, or this passage then, transitions us from Jerusalem to Antioch being the main center of note. Remember, Jerusalem remains, I believe, the center of Christianity. That's where the apostles are. That's where Peter is. Um, That's going to remain the the main center. But Luke's focus is going to be Antioch. Antioch is going to be that mission-sending city. It's going to be the city um, where Paul and Silas and Barnabas um, are going to be going forth to declare the gospel. So this passive text serves as a transition. It serves as a bridge into a, a new section of Acts. There are a lot of people who would, who would divide Acts. So they would outline in their outline of the book of Acts, they would say part one focuses on Peter and part two focuses on Paul. We're getting ready to, to enter into part two, if you will, that focus from um, Peter to Paul, from Jews to Gentiles, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Are you with me? That's just a bit of a background as to uh, how I'm going to understand this, this passage text. Let me give you a little preview of where some of the themes that, that we're going to develop today, some of the themes I hope we're going to encounter. And um, the first theme that we're going to to address is how God adds to his church and primarily that God builds his church. God builds his church. And I think this is prevalent. We're going to see that repeated phrase and he added to the people. He added to the church and the church was added. And we're going to see that phrase repeated about three times. And it is God who is doing this act. The second thing I think uh, theme that I want us to pay attention to as we're working our way through this is the diversity of the diversity of the church. That is, cultural and racial bound, uh, uh, borders and boundaries are not a hindrance to the gospel. So, it's amazing because when the gospel now goes into pagan cities, there's all sorts of new cultural issues that they have to deal with, but that is not a hindrance to the gospel. That is not a hindrance to people being received into the kingdom, nor are racial boundaries a hindrance to people being received into the kingdom. So that's a second element of what we're going to see today. Another interesting aspect that I I hope to try to develop as we get towards the end of the message, and that is how connected the churches are. Um, We're going to see this about midway through our message, but also I'll try to draw it in as we get to an end. There are no Lone Ranger churches, which I find really interesting. The churches are connected with one another. I think that's a, a really interesting point. And then finally, we want to look at the generosity of the early believers, how that, that churches took care of one another, believers took care of one another as individuals, and churches took care of one another as churches. And so um, those will be four themes. I don't know if they're my four points, but I hope to, to develop some of those themes as we go through. So are we good? Are you with me? Because I can repeat all of that, and I can elaborate if you'd like. It's not a problem. Well, let's go ahead and let's read our text this morning. Follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. And then let's, uh, after I'm done reading, we'll look at it a little more closely. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Listen to God's inerrant word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Our Father, we come before you this day and we recognize that your word is truth. Because you are truth and because you cannot lie, that which you have given to us is truthful. I pray, Father God, that your spirit would guide us and fill us and lead us and enable us, Lord God, to understand your holy word. That you would illumine our minds so that we might see your truth and glorify you. Not just to learn stuff, not just to be academically more proficient, but that we might be transformed by the living and breathing Word of God. And that the God who, who inspired this Word would dwell with us and among us and in us. And that we would be transformed in our bodies, Lord God, that our thinking would be different, that our lives would be different, that our actions would be different, that we would speak differently, that we would align ourselves with your purposes. So let this, thing, let this be done according to your great purposes. And this we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. So we begin with this idea that the gospel now arrives in Antioch. The gospel is going to come to Antioch. And we see this and, and we look at the time frame. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So we see this connection all the way back to chapter 8. Because you'll remember... Uh, Saul began breathing threats and, and murders against the church and a persecution arose because of, um, at that time, Saul the Pharisee um, who was persecuting the church and it scattered the church. And remember, we talked about that, how the fires of persecution scattered the seeds of the gospel and the gospel began going forth. And so the, the fires of persecution have scattered the seeds of, uh, of the gospel. And we see that down here in Jerusalem, this is where the church is, kind of, is, is pretty much started, um, but the fires of persecution have scattered um, the gospel. We've seen the gospel go up here to Damascus, and that's where Paul is convert, or Saul is converted. We've seen down along here in the, Ga in the Gaza area, the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's the gospel, and of course he takes it way down here down around the amp, um, if this were to scale. Um, and he takes it down here to the, uh, the Nubian kingdom that we call Ethiopia. And so it's, it, it's been traveling around. But now what we see is that it is uh, going uh, in this area of Phoenicia, Cyprus, and then over here to Antioch. So we're seeing a pretty big... You can see this, this expanding. Well, it's actually up here in Tarsus because we're going to learn Saul's here. So let's include Tarsus. So we're seeing it started that little dot. And now the gospel has covered quite a bit of ground. It is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria up in here and to the uttermost parts of the world. And it's now doing exactly what Christ has said was going to happen. And we want to talk just a little bit about coming up there to Antioch because Antioch is a very important city in the Roman Empire. You might say, some have said it's probably the third most important city in the Roman Empire. Rome being number one, of course, and Alexandria, which we don't have on our map. Um, it's, I just did something. I'm sorry. Did I just do something? Whatever I did, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Um. <clears throat> I just learned I can mess with Jesse from up here. <laughs> Thank you, and I apologize for that. But Alexandria is kind of 
kind of over in this area. So, so Rome, number one, Alexandria, number two, and then Antioch is a major city in the Roman Empire. About 500,000 people are, are living there. It is a cosmopolitan city. You have people coming all the way from the east. You have Asians. You have um, uh, Indians. You have, um, of, of course, Syrians and what we might call Europeans. You have Semitic people coming up from the south. So it is this melting pot, if you will, of, uh, of people living in, in Antioch. And so, of course, because it's a melting pot, you have all kinds of crazy religions. You have really here the main worship is the worship of Daphne. Um, and so you have the Roman pantheon uh, being worshipped. It is a, uh, a city that is morally bankrupt. Uh, at least we would call it morally bankrupt. In fact, Rome even thought it was morally bankrupt. It's, it's uh, on the Orontes River, and uh, one of the, the poets from, from Rome was concerned, and he expressed how the, the filth from the Orontes River has now filled um, the Tiber River and has now infected Rome. And so um, they, even Rome's like, going, yeah, those folks in Antioch, they're, <coughs> they need to straighten up and fly, str- fly right, and, uh, like us in Rome. So it's just, that's just a little bit of a background. So it's a large city, but like I said, about 500,000 people, about, um, and, and people from all over the world. So, so now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose because of Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Look at this, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Men and women now have left Jerusalem and they're spreading the word. And I want you to, I want you to look at your text, look closely at your text, and I want you to tell me what are the names of the people who are spreading the gospel to all of these regions. Name one name. You don't have one. What does that tell us? I think that's really important. The heroes of the Christian faith include a lot of people whose names you don't know and you will never know. Maybe in eternity you will. But while you live on this earth, the gospel is going about through unnamed, unspectacular people. I think that's critical for us to understand. We live, not just us living in the cult of personality, the cult of celebrity. That's something that's always gone on. But we have this idea that in order for me to be some incredible believer, I've got to have a name. Or I need to somebody out there on the internet or TV or whatever. That's the person. I want you to understand the gospel is going forth because of a bunch of unnamed people, a bunch of unnamed churches, people. And, and the other thing I want to point out, well, I'm getting, there. I'm getting ahead of myself. So the heroes of the Christian faith include those in tiny churches living normal lives, serving their neighbors, and they are faithful to God without recognition. That's crucial. I'm going to just be really blunt today and maybe knock our self-esteem down a notch. Not that I mean to, but let me be very blunt. More likely than not, more likely than not, not one of us here will ever have their name mentioned in a book of history. In a hundred years, your name will not be in some history book. My name will not be in some book of church history. Unless God does something amazing, and He might. But more likely than not, you will be one of those unnamed people who brought the gospel somewhere and turned the world upside down. God hasn't forgotten. The history is limited. We can only mention so many names. I know when I begin my church history class at seminary, I I tell people, I say, we're just going to study some of the big names. But I think God's book of church history is much more expansive than ours. And he's got people you've never heard of who are amazing men and women. That's who we're talking about. The gospel is spreading not through the, the disciples, not through the big names. It's 
spreading because of a bunch of people who you've never heard of. We don't even have their names. That's how the gospel is spreading. That's how it spreads today. It doesn't spread because of some celebrity on the internet. It spreads because of you and me having conversations with our neighbor. That's how it spreads. And that's what I want to point out. Notice this word. It says, it's, it's speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And I just want to be a little geekish on you. That word speaking is just, there, it's just a word for talking. It's the common word for having a conversation. In other words, they're not preaching. They're not proclaiming. They're not doing anything amazing. They're having conversations with their neighbors. They're just talking. That's all they're doing is they're talking with their neighbors about Jesus. And it's spreading to Cyprus and to Tarsus and to Antioch and all through Phoenicia and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. It's a casual conversation with your neighbors about Jesus. That's what it is. Tradesmen are taking their goods from one place to another and they're talking about Jesus. Somebody has their little shop and, so, and, and a visitor from the Far East comes in and says, man, I've been traveling a long way. Have you got the item I need? Yes, I do. And a conversation starts. And they start talking about the Lord. And the gospel is spread. That's how the gospel spreads. And that is church history. We talk about the big names, but the gospel spread to India. The gospel spread to Asia. It spread throughout by just a bunch of people having conversations about the Lord. So keep that in mind. And so some of these people were only speaking to Jews, but there were some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch did the unthinkable thing of speaking to the Hellenists. Now, I'm going to just unpack this word just a little bit for those of you who have been with us. You'll know that um, we've talked about there are Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. They're both Jews. Um, The Hebraic Jews speak Hebrew and the the Hellenistic Jews speak um, Greek and have a Greek background. But I don't think that's how this word's being used here. So I'm just going to cut to the chase and not bore you with all of the details. But this word can be used in a lot of different ways. But I, I have a I think that the idea here is this is just talking about pagans, Greeks, unbelievers. When it talks about the Hellenists or the Greeks, um, it's just talking about people who didn't know the Lord. They were not Jewish. And so the, um, the gospel then um, is coming and people are speaking mostly to, only to Jews, but there's a few people who come into the city of Antioch and they actually, believe, they actually begin talking to pagans unbelievers, non-Jews, and they begin to talk. Notice this. This is so, to me, so key. And they begin preaching the Lord Jesus. This is, this is one reason why I believe that they're not speaking to Hellenistic Jews because they're speaking about the Lord Jesus, which would have significance to somebody from a Greek background and not from a Jewish background. See, they're not talking about Messiah. They're not talking about Christ Jesus. They're talking about Lord Jesus. And this would resonate with those who have a no Jewish background at all. Those who come from a Roman pagan worldview. This term would resonate with non-Jews because they were searching for a sovereign Lord who would grant them or guarantee them salvation and immortality. And they begin talking about Jesus is Lord. Remember, one of the great refrains in the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. And this is why we see Paul focusing, especially in Romans 9 and 10, on the fact that Jesus is Lord. They're preaching that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. It is He who grants eternal life. It is He who grants salvation. He is the one who rules over heaven and earth. Not Caesar. Not any of your philosophical ideas. Not the Roman pantheon. Not through the veneration of your ancestors. It comes through the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. They were seeking a guarantee of salvation and immortality through human philosophy. And as great as Plato and Aristotle were, they will not give you salvation. They cannot provide salvation. They may uh, provide some interesting reasons, some great thoughts, but they cannot. They are not Lord over all. That is reserved for Christ. Emperor worship Caesar is not Lord. Christ is Lord. They served in these mystery religions, um, or, and we're actually going to be in about three weeks, we're going to be talking about mystery religions because 
um, Charlie's going to begin a, a study in the book of Colossians on Wednesday night in, in, in two weeks. And mystery of religions are a big part of the book of Colossians. Um, and so these were just really kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, you can call them kind of new agey, you know, weird kind of spiritual weirdness. I think that's the technical term, spiritual weirdness. But they're preaching the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord is shorthand for they're preaching the complete gospel that Jesus lived and that he lived on this earth and he lived as ruler of all that he had. He, he ruled over um, life. He raised people from the dead. He ruled over nature. He walks on the water. He rules over sickness and disease and that he heals the lepers and um, those who are infirmed, uh, those who, have, uh, who are bent over in pain. He rules over that and he rules over death itself by, that, by the fact that people put him to death and death could not hold him. He is Lord over heaven and earth, over life and death, over health and wellness and health and sickness. He is Lord over all. They are proclaiming Jesus is Lord over everything, even over death itself. And look at the fruit. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. Uh, Oh gosh, I could do three weeks just on that but I'm going to get it done in a couple of minutes. I'm going to get to the, the very heart of this. I want you to note two things happening here. Oftentimes when, when we talk about, when Bible students get together and we talk about a person being converted, if you're a Christian today, you've been converted. You've converted from your old life to this new life. And we talk about two elements in conversion, and those two elements of conversion are faith and repentance. And that's what we have here, that they believed and they turned. Don't miss that. What did they believe? First of all, they believed the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he lived and he fulfilled the whole law, and that... He died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and three days later he rose again according to the scriptures. And in his death he died and our sins are forgiven and in his life he fulfilled the law. So we now have both his righteousness because he fulfilled the law and we have the forgiveness of sins because he died in our place. We are now righteous and sinless before the before a holy God and we will stand blameless before a holy God and we believe that. We trust in that. We rely on Christ. We trust in Christ. We rely on Christ and we cling to Christ. This is the gospel. He is Lord. They believe it. But they don't just believe. There's a whole lot of people who will believe that but they have never repented of their sins. And this is the second critical aspect of conversion. They turn to the Lord. They have repented. Repented of what? They have returned from their sins and not only turned from their sins, there's a lot of people who turn from their sins. They say, well, I'm going to give up drinking. That does not make a person a Christian though, does it? Or I'm going to give up cursing and swearing and all of that other bad stuff. I'm going to give that up. And they become a great moral person. Well, that's great. They're still not. They're 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 a moral per, more or less. They're more moral than they were, but they are not a believer because repentance is turning away from that, but turning to Christ and trusting in Him and believing on Him and relying upon Him to save them from their sins. And so, these people came and they began preaching the Lord Jesus to Gentiles, to pagans, and they heard the gospel, and they trusted that those words were true, and they backed up their trust by actually taking action. And they turned from their sins, and they turned to Christ. And note this, why did they do that? Because the gracious hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. Folks, I want you to understand that church growth is an act of God. God builds His church. God builds His church. He said he would. 
One person plants, another person waters, but God causes the growth. Folks, that should take a load off of our shoulders. You are not tasked with the conversion of anybody. You are not tasked with making anybody ever make a decision for Jesus Christ. If you manipulate somebody into making a decision, I fear they're not saved. They might be. God's merciful and great and he's beyond all things. You are not tasked with converting a single person. That is God's task. Share the gospel. Talk about the gospel with your neighbors. Share the good news. Proclaim Jesus as Lord. Have conversations. And pray that the mighty hand of God would add to his church. Add to their numbers. God builds his church. So we've now seen that the gospel has arrived in Antioch. Well, that's pretty amazing. But um, now Barnabas. Our next thing here is I want us to look at how Barnabas um, arrives in Antioch. And so he's here in Jerusalem. And uh, he then travels all the way up to Antioch. Actually, down to Antioch because Jerusalem's up on a hill, so everything's down from Antioch. And, and people have asked the question, why, why send Barnabas? Why send anybody? I, I would suggest that here is the church protecting the church. Church leaders are protecting the gospel. We hear the Gentiles are receiving the gospel. We understand, remember last time that I spoke, Samuel did a great job preaching last week. So two weeks ago, when we were talking, we were talking about the, the conversion of Cornelius. And what was significant about the, the conversion of Cornelius? It wasn't simply that he was a Gentile who received the gospel. It wasn't simply that the gospel had gone to Gentiles and now Gentiles had received the gospel. But the really amazing aspect of Cornelius's conversion is that a Gentile received Christ, was saved without becoming a Jew first. That is so critical. In other words, the Jews said, yes, of course you're welcome to become a Christian or you're welcome to enter in, but you must undergo the Jewish rites of circumcision, you must, especially, and you must then observe the dietary laws and the Sabbath days. If you do that, then you will be accepted by God. When Cornelius and his family and that whole household received the Holy Spirit, they received the Holy Spirit just as Peter and the apostles did on the day of Pentecost without any of that. So there is no distinction now between Jew and Gentile. We all come by faith in the grace of Christ alone. That's it. That's the amazing truth of the conversion of Cornelius because Gentiles had always been received into the Jewish faith. What's going on now is people are being received by God without becoming a Jew first. This becomes a huge controversy, and we'll talk about that when we get to Acts chapter 15. And that's the whole book of Galatians, a huge controversy. How does a Gentile get saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. And so Antioch has heard the gospel, and Barnabas goes up to, to check on how are they being saved? On what basis are they being saved? What are they believing? The Jerusalem church is protecting the gospel to make sure that no weirdness is happening in the city of Antioch. Let me give you a modern day application of why that is so critical. You've all heard, I'm certain, of great revivals, great gospel revivals happening in the, on the continent of Africa. And we're all like, oh, the gospel's spreading. What's spreading is not the gospel. I, I hate to inform you. Much of what's spreading is not the gospel. It is a prosperity teaching. It is a word of faith teaching. It is a name it, claim it. It is a prosperity. And it is no gospel. It is no gospel. It does not save. Jerusalem said, Barnabas, go up and make sure that the gospel is actually being proclaimed in Antioch. Protect the gospel. Barnabas goes on up there. And what does he see? He sees the grace of God. 
Oh, and he rejoices. Yeah, no weird stuff's going on. We don't have some weird prosperity gospel going on here that is no gospel that can't save. We don't see some works-based salvation happening. We don't see some Judaizer um, idea where you have to become a Jew first. We don't see anything. What I see is the grace of God. He finds that God is saving people based upon the finished work of Christ alone. And here's what I thought was fascinating about this. That when Barnabas came, he did what? He saw the grace of God. Let me ask you, how do you see God's grace? Is it some entity that you can actually see? How do you see grace? How did Barnabas see God's grace? Let me answer that. I think the best way to explain that is he sees it through changed lives. He sees it through people who were one way and now they're another way. How? By God's grace and mercy that they heard the word of God, they were convicted, they repented of their sins, they called upon the name of the Lord, he put their Holy Spirit in them and they are now new creations. That you can see. And they got there by grace. Perhaps a great passage of text that would help us in this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Um, where Paul writes, writes this, he says, well, actually, 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Notice past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You can see that. How did they become one way and turn around and become the other way? It was by the grace of God who placed their spirit and they transformed these people. Barnabas goes up and he sees this. He sees transformed lives and, he's, and then, notice this, and he is glad. I think there's a little understatement there. That's just my view. Folks, grace is a joyful truth. Grace should cause us to rejoice. When we gather together, we should rejoice in grace that you are saved, not based on the merits of anything that you've done, but because God set his love upon you and made you a believer. That he added you to his kingdom. Barnabas goes up to Antioch and he sees God's grace in the lives of these people, and he rejoices. But he doesn't just rejoice. He's not just glad. He does something else. Um, and then when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And then he did this. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Barnabas, we've been introduced to Barnabas a few weeks ago, or a while back. Nelson um, taught us about Barnabas. Um, a few months ago, and Barnabas is also known. In fact, the word Barnabas, that's not his real name. Um, Barnabas means son of encouragement. And here we see a, a glimpse of his, that encouraging nature in Barnabas. These new believers, remember, that's why I kind of went over the city of Antioch, because these new believers are living in, in, in a city where obedience to Christ would be seen as odd, perhaps even disruptive, perhaps even undermining because um, Christians were, were accused of also, they were accused of undermining the Roman government. Because they wouldn't worship Caesar, um, they, and they were seen as being detrimental to the empire. In fact, there's a, there, there's a, there's a wonderful book um, by Justin Martyr, it's called Dialogue with, um, with Trypho, and in that, one of the things, I'm sorry, in his book Apologies, and one of the things that he does in his book of, of called Apologies, is that he is writing to defend Christians as good civic citizens. That you, Caesar, you want Christians in your culture. You want Christians into society. We are not disruptive. We are not undermining anything. In fact, we are good citizens. That, that was his whole um, not his whole thing, but that's one of the things he deals with. And so you have these people living in a city that their faith, their, their morals would have been seen as out of step with Antiochene, you know, the people, people who live in Antioch, Antiochene 
um, morals. They would have been seen as odd. A man might have been seen odd because he has a wife, not a wife, a mistress, and a prostitute, which was normal. Well, you just have a wife and you love your wife? That seems so odd. Why do you think that way? And so Barnabas knows we have Christians living in this, this rather interesting, uh, this, this immoral, if you will, society. And Christians are now living as kind of outcasts, as different. And there would be a great temptation to compromise this newfound faith and go back to what they had been. And so remember, the adversary roars and many are going to be tempted to compromise. And Barnabas says, man, you guys need to stay faithful. I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to encourage you to be faithful to the Lord and to be steadfast in purpose. Should have been a Bible study this morning. That's what we talked about. How we encourage and strengthen one another and we build one another up in, in the faith that we spur one another on to love and good works. This is what Barnabas is doing. His encouragement is an important ministry. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is an encouragement, isn't it? It's an encouragement to stay the course. Stay faithful to the God who has saved you. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. It goes like this. Therefore, this is to the church. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So keep building one another up. Keep encouraging. This is the words of the church. Paul's word to the, to the Thessalonians. My word to you is Paul's word to the Thessalonians. Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are already doing. In other words, don't stop. Keep doing it. We live in a culture and in a life where it's easy. We get worn down. Sometimes being a believer is hard. Your job may, there may be no believers at your job. Maybe they're even antagonistic. Maybe not even in your household. Encourage one another. And then, even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, we see this again repeated. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold fast to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Folks, stand firm. Stand firm. It's worth it. It's worth it. And so Barnabas comes to this very difficult situation and he, and he sees the grace of God and now he encourages them to keep going. His exhortation flows out of who he is. He just doesn't do this. Note, note his characteristics. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Man, I hope that would be great to be recognized as that. If I ever get in a history book, I said, well, I'm pretty Monday. I, don't, I doubt very much I'll ever be in a history book. A hundred years from now, my name will probably never be remembered as in, in church history. But if it is, if they were to write about me, that would be an awesome thing to include. A man filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. I, that would be awesome. Not a guy who had a big church. I don't. Not a guy who had some great ministry. Not a guy who did this or that. But a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith. What an awesome thing to have on your spiritual resume. Jesus sees you. Oh, you're the guy filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. Awesome. Welcome. That'd be all. That'd be great. Amen. And out of that nature, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith, he is a man who encourages the saints. In fact, one of the evidences I would say when we look at Ephesians, um, what it means in Ephesians six, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll say, "Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit." And then it tells you what a Holy Spirit-filled person does. And and there's a lot of exhortation and encouragement. Um, going on in that passage of text. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we know? Because he encourages the saints, which is a fruit. Um, uh, faith is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so here is a man who loves the Lord. Uh, I'm grateful for Barnabas. And so Barnabas now comes to, uh, to Antioch. Well, he realizes the task is a little bit too big for him, so um, he goes and gets Saul. And now Saul comes to Antioch. Remember, Saul's in Tarsus. 
Because he fled Jerusalem. People were trying to kill him. They took him over to Caesarea, put him on a ship, and he went up to Tarsus. Barnabas is over here in Antioch, and he's going, man, i got, I got a lot of work to do. I'm going to go get Saul and bring him back. So Saul comes to Antioch. Um, he's, they begin teaching them. One of the interesting things I think about Barnabas, though, is did you, do you remember that Barnabas is a Levite? This is a priestly tribe. Barnabas is a Levite. So if anybody would have hold to a strict Jewish um, tradition of, of Christ and the way you come to Christ is you've got to become a Jew first, would be Barnabas. And he's like, no, you come to Christ through faith. And it's not, your, it's not your heritage. It's not your lineage. It's not your bloodline. It's not the, the region of the world that you are from. It's not the, uh, your economic standpoint. You come to Christ by faith. And they begin teaching. And he's engaging with people up in Antioch, which is, like I said, a cosmopolitan city. You've got, it's a melting pot. So I can imagine, I, I'm just kind of putting myself in the place there. The, the, the Bible study is people from all over the place. Various education levels, various job descriptions, various skin pigmentations, various um, uh, uh, cultures, all of these things. And they're gathered together and he's teaching them. Him and Saul begin teaching them that they might prosper in this new life. So he gets Saul, and Saul's there gathering together, and they're teaching. And I like this phrase where it says, and they met with the church. They met with the church and taught a great many people. For a whole year they met with the church. This flies in the face, I think, of what is sometimes popular in the Christian life. That is... um, this rejection of regular, faithful, consistent gathering together as the church. That is not found in the book of Acts. They regularly gathered together with the church. Regular, consistent, faithful gathering of the people of God with the people of God is the norm of the early church. I recall a study where I'd read it a while back that, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, regular church attenders, when they talked about what is a regular church attender, and um, regular church attendance was, they might miss a Lord's Day gathering once every couple of months. That's what they considered regular. Today, a regular church attender identifies himself as being in church two Sundays a month. That's just not normal in the early church. People cry, let's be like the early church. Well, let's be like the early church. The early church regularly gathered together. And they regularly gathered together, I'm sure, on other days. But they also regularly gathered on the Lord's Day. And so they begin to gather and they're meeting with them for a whole year. And he begins and they begin teaching them and they're teaching them the word of God. And I I think this is also important that teaching is the central is one of the central features of the local church. Teaching is one of the central elements of the local church. And we see that again through the book of Acts. It is the teaching ministry that is central in the local church. So Saul comes to Antioch and he joins with Barnabas and they gather together on a regular basis with, other, with, with the church, with other believers, and they begin teaching them the word of God. Um, that becomes central to their ministry. <clears throat> And it is here, then, we are told that believers, disciples, were first called Christians. Some say this is a derogatory term. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it's interesting. I just kind of did a quick review of the names of believers through the book of Acts so far. We see them called disciples. We see them called saints. We see them called brother and sister. We see them called witnesses. Now they're called Christians, which are the Christ ones. That is, they look like Christ. They follow like Christ. They live like Christ. Um, 
one pastor, teacher, um, author by the name of Henry Ironside. Some of you may recognize that name. He was uh, traveling through China and he was regularly introduced. Um, he was regularly introduced as the Yasu Yan. I don't know if I pronounced that right. So any of you who know Cantonese, you can correct me afterwards. <clears throat> And he kept being introduced as Yasu Yan, Yasu Yan. And he asked, what does that mean? And they said, well, Yasu is the Cantonese word for, Christ, for Jesus, and Yan is the Cantonese word for man. They are introducing you as the Jesus man. This is who we are. We are Christians. We are Christ ones. We are Jesus men and Jesus women. That's who we are. That is, we look like Christ. We are, we are to look like Christ. Paul says we're being conformed, that God's purpose is to conform us into the image of Christ. That was, we are growing. None of us are quite there yet. But we are being conformed. I hope that we look more like Christ today than we did a few years ago. We're growing. We're becoming more and more Christ-like. We are the Yasu Yan, the, the Jesus men, or I don't know what the female term of that. I don't know what the feminine version of Yan is, so um, forgive me for not being... Uh, gender inclusive here. I don't know Cantonese. I barely know English. The next thing we see here is that generosity is um, uh, goes from Antioch to Jerusalem. Here's one of the wonderful, wonderful things I think about this, and and I didn't really have time to develop it, but it's worth developing at another time. So up till now, what we're seeing is all of this, these gifts flowing into Antioch, right? We see the gospel coming into Antioch. We see Barnabas and Kerr flowing into Antioch. We see Saul coming over there and pouring into the people of Antioch. And now you'll notice, how does Antioch respond? It doesn't say, oh, great, keep feeding me. Keep blessing me. Keep the blessings pouring in. No, now that they've been filled up with the blessings of Christ, it begins to flow out. And it's going to now flow down to Jerusalem. This is, this is the Christian life, isn't it? This is how a church functions. We receive all of these blessings and gifts. But if it just stays with us, folks, we stagnate and die and we rot and we stink. It needs to flow out. And so Antioch now has been filled with the gospel and they've had great teaching and they've had wonderful blessings and great encouragement. And now we become the source of blessing. Now we become the source of provision. Now we become the source of goodness. Now we become the source of the gospel. They're going to be sending missionaries out. We're not there yet. But they're going to be the ones. So out of this abundance, now they start flowing out of what they've received. And so some prophets, it tells us, goes up um, or goes down to Antioch. Um, uh, I'll deal with um, the, the office of prophet um, in, in a little, at, at another point in the book of Acts. We're not there yet, so I'm going to hold off on that and we'll deal with it a little bit more fully. But we learn in Ephesians that the early church was built on the foundation of the, the apostles and prophets. And now this prophet goes into um, the city um, out of Jerusalem into Antioch and says basically there's going to be a famine. And what do the folks of Antioch do? They gather their resources and they begin to send it down to the uh, people who are affected by the famine in Jerusalem. Here's the wonderful, wonderful thing about this. Prior to the gospel coming to Antioch, prior to the realization that Gentiles are saved by Christ alone through faith alone in Jerusalem, prior to that, the people in Antioch would have been regarded lowly by the people of Jerusalem. Likewise, the people in, Jerus the people in Antioch wouldn't have respected too many of the Jews in Jerusalem or the, the Christians there. These people were at odds with one another. But here's what happened. The gospel comes. And the, the enmity that has existed between Gentile and Jew is now broken down by uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Charlie is brought up on Wednesday night. This is a great, great quote that he has that he has stated. And he said, and he read somewhere, and I don't know where it was, but he, he had read where in those days Jews considered Gentiles the only thing 
good the gent- the only thing Gentiles are good for is to fuel the fires of hell. Yeah. That's the view down here. Do you think they took too kindly to such a view? Probably not, but the gospel comes. And now, let's pour out the love of God to the people of Antioch. They are now saved by grace. And now these people who were once at enmity with the folks in Jerusalem, let's be a blessing to them. Do you see how the gospel is transforming these people's lives? This is the gospel. It is, there's now a generosity and a unity between these diverse people. Groups that previously were separate are now joined together under the banner of Jesus. Jews brought the gospel to the Gentiles, and Gentiles are now going to aid their brethren in a time of need. This is the church. This is beautiful here. The other thing that... so. And in fact, Paul will, will bring that up. He says, listen, you, you Gentiles, you probably need to help your Jewish brothers. After all, the gospel came from them. The good news, Jesus is your Messiah. He's a good Jew from, um, uh, from Israel. And the gospel has come from, from the Jews. Now you need to um, be a blessing to your Jewish brethren. This is what's going on. Here's the other thing I want to point out. You will note there are no Lone Ranger churches. Just as there are no Lone Ranger believers, a believer who gets saved in the book of Acts is, is immediately joined to another congregation. Is always is immediately joined to a church. They're just joined to other believers. There are no lo- Lone Ranger Christians. I just worship Jesus by myself. That is foreign to the book of Acts. And there aren't Lone Ranger churches. Jerusalem sent Barnabas to verify the gospel. We're interested in what's being formed up there in, in, in Antioch. We need to make sure that the gospel is right. Likewise, Antioch sent aid to struggling believers in Jerusalem. These are churches that are, are interrelated. They are not like, well, I just have my church and we just kind of function on our own without any oversight, without any accountability, without any responsibility to any other churches. No, Antioch doesn't see it that way. They see, you know what, the churches in Jerusalem, they're in trouble. We need to help them. Let's gather together and we will help them. Likewise, the church in Jerusalem is saying, well, we need to bless the, the folks in Antioch. Let's give them Barnabas. That's a pretty good gift. And Barnabas and went, went and got Saul. And uh, so you see these churches are all kind of operating um, together. There's this interconnectedness of churches. There aren't Lone Ranger believers and there aren't Lone Ranger churches. Which is why, as a local congregation, this particular little church, we associate with a bunch of other churches. We are not a lone ranger sitting up here in Pine all by ourselves without any connection to any other church. We cooperate with other churches for the purpose of missions, for the purpose of helping with needs. When another church is struggling, you know what? We, we can help out. Suzanne has actually developed... Um, there was a time we had musical teams and we would go and she'd send them out to bless other churches that didn't have music teams. All right. Oh, you need music in your church? We got some people. We can send them to you. And, and there are all sorts of churches um, in this area and, and, and in our state that have blessed us and we bless them because we're connected to them. We say, listen, you guys are, you guys are preaching the gospel. If you need our help, we will help you. Likewise, if um, we need help, can we count on you? Yeah, because we're connected. So there is no Lone Ranger believers. There are not Lone Ranger churches. There is this connection. When a, when a believer becomes a Christian, they're connected to a church. And when a church is established, it is connected with other churches. And they protect the gospel with one another. They call one another out. And they assist one another when there is need. This is... Um, our transition, and it is moving away now from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Peter to Paul, and from Jews to Gentiles. So I will just conclude with um, just a couple of quick points. The first one is that the gospel spread by, spreads by means of regular people having regular conversations. God adds the growth. God grows churches, all right? But he uses means, and the means he uses is you. All right, you can say, well, that's 
pretty messed up means that he's using. Yeah, he uses a whole lot of us messed up folks. We're going to see Barnabas doesn't have it all together. Saul doesn't have it all together. Peter doesn't have it all together. And he uses them to bring about his purposes. So the gospel spreads by means of regular conversations. So in our PTA meetings, in our businesses, in our hobbies, when, you know, when we're out and about, we're having Jesus conversations. That's how the gospel spreads. I know we want to do it some spectacular way, but it spreads by just talking to our neighbors. Christians also are strengthened by other Christians by means of encouragement. We encourage one another. Folks, look around. Probably somebody in this church right now is struggling. They may have a smile on their face and they're here looking good. Y'all look good, by the way. But I'm going to take a guess that there's not one person sitting in this church that could not benefit from a word of encouragement. And you're just blessing them today. And through the week. So not just on Sunday. So maybe even put it on your calendar. They got fancy calendars now on your phones and it'll even give you a little reminder. Text so-and-so and encourage them. Because I say, well, I'm going I'm to text somebody when I get home and send them a word of encouragement and then life happens and I take a nap and I forget all about it. But you can actually put a little alarm. You guys know that. And I'll tell you, text so-and-so, encourage so-and-so. So throughout the week, encourage people, call them up, text them, send them a card, do something, encourage one another, because every single person in this church right now, even if they're doing great, will, will, will benefit from your word of encouragement. So we strengthen one another by that way, by encouraging one another. Here's another way we encourage one another. By regular gathering. Folks, I have no problem. Simone and I have both we have taught Bible studies to zero people. We've taught Bible studies to one person. Simona's taught her Bible study to me, and I've taught my Bible study to her. And we're, we're good. I can tell you, though, it is a great blessing. It is such an encouragement when it's more than just me and Simone. When you guys gather for the Bible studies, when you gather for church, it is such an encouragement. It is such a strengthening. I know Charlie will tell you the same thing. I'm sure Sam will tell you the same thing. When you're here and you're gathered together and I hear your voices singing, I was so glad when Suzanne, you kind of shut the music off there at the, uh, that first song because I couldn't really hear. I'm going, man, is anybody singing? And then you stopped and it's like, man, they are singing. And I was so blessed to hear the congregation's voices. Uh, that just encouraged me. Thank you. So this is how we encourage one another. And here's the other thing that I want. Churches join with other churches to protect the gospel and the system needs. And I've kind of gone over that. Finally, I'll, I'll add this. It says, up in our text, it says that a great many people were added to the Lord. One of the big themes is the, the Lord adds to his church. And you think about that. A great many people were added to the Lord. And we could go off on how they're added to the Lord um, but a great many people were added. Who added them? The Lord. So a great many people, the Lord added to the Lord. It is the Lord's church. This is Christ's church. I pray that we're faithful to that. If God causes growth here, we'll be blessed. We'll be encouraged and thankful. And if he doesn't, then he doesn't. But we'll try to be faithful to him. But the Lord adds. It's the Lord's church. And we will pray that the Lord will add to the Lord. Would you stand and we will pray together. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together. Lord, we are encouraged when, um, when we pray together. And I thank you, Lord God, that Samuel prayed with us today. We're grateful, Lord God, when we hear your word as, as a church. And I thank you, Lord God, that uh, again, Samuel read God's word to us. What a blessing. Lord, we're grateful that we can lift up our voices in song. The Christian faith is a singing faith. It encourages our soul. And I thank you uh, for Suzanne and Dale and Maya to, to bless us in that and all the hard work, Lord God, for Jesse, for encouraging us and putting the words on the screen so we can sing them. Putting the, the, 
the PowerPoint so we have a visual representation. Lord, you've encouraged us and you've blessed us, and I thank you for your servants in doing that, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that we would go from this place. We thank you that you've added to this church. You've added to your church and this one in particular. I know we're small, Lord God, but you've blessed us over all of these years. And we're grateful for that. So I pray, Lord God, that we would join together, that we would find people that we're not real familiar with, Lord God, and encourage them this week, strengthen them this week. Be a blessing. Look around, Lord God. I pray we would look around and see who's not here today. Who's missing? Why are they missing? Are they sick? Are they okay? Be a blessing to them. So continue to um, fill us, Lord God, so that now that we are filled up, out of us flows rivers of living water. Let us be a source of blessing. In Christ's name, amen.